What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 53 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lowell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with James Hanscombe. James is the principal of Harris Westminster Sixth Form, which is a fee-free school in London that aims to bring a first-class education to disadvantaged students in London and surrounds. Today, we're discussing James's book, A School Built on Ethos, Ideas, Assemblies, and Hard-Won Wisdom. This is really quite a remarkable book from really quite a remarkable man. The book describes how James, as the foundational principal for Harris Westminster, which was started back in 2014, has used assemblies to craft the school's ethos, set expectations, educate and inspire his students. More than anything though, this book has convinced me of the power and importance of the spoken word to shape culture. And hopefully this podcast has a similar impact upon you. Besides that, this podcast really is a rollicking ride, and this is the first time that I've used the word beautiful to describe one of the ERRR podcasts. Also, I'm happy to say that today's episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and I'm taking today to highlight a few of my favourite books from John Cat. Firstly is Michael Pershing's book, Teaching Math with Examples. As I discussed with Michael back in episode 51 of the ERRR podcast, this book outlines a new and powerful way to teach with worked examples, and one that's had a big impact upon my own teaching to date. One of the most useful things that teachers can do to get better is to add new and valuable tools to their teacher toolbox, and come to a deep understanding of the situations in which these tools are most effective. In his book, Michael dissects the commonly used and commonly misunderstood tool of worked examples and provides expert advice on how and when to use them. Also this month, I'd like to highlight the fantastic book, Fear is the Mind Killer by James Mannion and Kate McAllister. This book details how James and Kate developed a learning skills curriculum at their school in Brighton, UK. It tells of the successes of the curriculum, how it built independent, self-regulating learners and significantly reduced the achievement gap between the school's less and more advantaged students. Fear is the Mind Killer is also a practical guide for how to develop such a program in your own school. If you're keen to get your hands on teaching math with examples or Fear is the Mind Killer or any other John Cat book for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERRR30 at checkout. That code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William has referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. Again, for 30% off any John Cat educational book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 53 of the ERRR podcast with James Hanscom. James Hanscom, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. It's uh, delightful to be here this this morning. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Wonderful, James. First question we always start with in the ERRR is if you meet someone new and they say, hi, James, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I hate the idea of being defined by one's job. 
And so whenever I get this question, a thousand subversive answers come through my brain. I play second row and fullback at rugby union. I'm learning to play the bass recorder. I write bad poems and memorise good ones. I uh, operate the PowerPoint when I'm at church. I try not to mess up being a father and husband. I rail against the unfair limit of 168 hours every week. And then I think that it's probably okay to be defined by the things that you love. And so I say I'm a school teacher. Well, there you go. And I didn't actually know that the bass recorder was a thing. So there you go. I've learned something new already. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful instrument. Wonderful. A bit of a more in-depth question now. And this is one I always like to start with with, with guests, just kind of set the scene and help us to, to learn a bit more about them. But what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Oh, I think the point is to develop young people who have the power to shape the world, who have choices about how they want to shape the world and who have the desire to make the world better, not just for themselves, but for those they love, those around them, the whole community. So, so that's, that's what I think the point is. I mean, it's about learning, really, isn't it? Learning's amazing. That's what school is. One of the catchphrases from your book, Learning is Amazing. All right, so today we are, we are discussing your book, book A School Built in Ethos, Ideas, Assemblies, and Hard-Won Wisdom. And, you know, just then when I said, how do you describe yourself when you meet someone new, you said a teacher, but you are also, as far as I'm aware still, the principal of a wonderful school, Harris Westminster Sixth Form. Now, you started that role at the start of 2014, but I wanted to go back a little bit and if you could just give us a little bit about your career to date and how you, how you came to be in that position of taking on this new school in 2014. I think that when you write it down on paper, it's fairly obvious sequence of someone following fairly straightforward ambition as a teacher. But I went to a comprehensive school in the north of England. Um, um, I was good at school. I went to Oxford University and I studied maths. And following my BA, I stayed on for graduate study and that graduate study took me to America. And so I ended up getting my master's from Harvard and sitting in my kitchen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one day reflecting on the woes of having a girlfriend who was thousands of miles away and um, struggling with the, the maths, if I'm honest. I thought I should probably get myself a career um, and decide what I actually wanted to do with my life. And I decided to give teaching a chance. I did my PGCE uh, back at Oxford University making that choice simply because I had some friends there and would have somewhere to live. And then started teaching in 1999, so in the last millennium, which is, is, is quite a wonderful thing, in South Wales, in Tonopandi Comprehensive, as was, in the Valleys. And then after two years there, had an opportunity to come and live and work in Australia, which I did for a year, um, lived on the lower North Shore of Sydney and worked in one of the all through private schools on the North Shore. Then I returned to the UK and got a job as head of maths in an 11 to 16 Roman Catholic school in South East London. I did that job for three years and then I applied to another school to be assistant head and I was assistant head in girls comprehensive, comprehensive in the land of grammar schools. So comprehensive with some 
students creamed off the top. And then when I came to look for a deputy head job, I got one of those in in one of the grammar schools that was doing the creaming. So I moved down the road and I was as deputy head in a wonderful grammar school working for for a brilliant head, uh, learned a huge amount and was lining up to take his job, if I'm honest. I quite fancied taking over from him and he was reaching retirement age. So it was not something that actually required that I put arsenic in his tea. But I have two daughters and the elder of those was reaching secondary school age and I wanted her to go to the best school nearby. And the best school nearby was the one that I made the best school over seven years of working as a deputy head. Um, I'm not short of arrogance. This may come across at at some point (laughs) later. We also were very clear that we didn't want her to go to a school where her father was the head teacher or even the deputy head teacher. And so in order for her to go to this school, I had to leave. Wow. Um, and so I started applying for headships elsewhere. And this one was crazily advertised as principal, comma, Croydon and would not have attracted my attention at all were I not desperate. But when I looked at the details, it was this amazing idea of a school in the centre of London um, designed to offer a really high-powered academic education to students from ordinary and disadvantaged backgrounds. And I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful idea. My one concern was that you say ordinary and disadvantaged backgrounds, but you're running selective school. And we all know that selective schools tend to have about 3% disadvantage. And so when I was talking to the Harris Federation, who were, who were organising it, who were, who were running the, the show, I said, I'm a little bit worried about this. And they said, why don't you look at our admissions policy? And it was almost the only policy that had already been written before I joined joined the piece. But I read it and it's amazing. It takes no prisoners, this admissions policy. It says that there's a pass mark on the test. And if you're disadvantaged and you get the pass mark, then you get in. And if you're not disadvantaged, we'll put you in a long list and we'll take the top ones. So the disadvantaged students are not competing with with the the middle class children. And so um, we've ended up with between 30 and 40 percent pupil premium. And it's been amazing. But it was it was that document, which is is a work of towering genius and, and lies at the heart of Harris Westminster and is something I've had absolutely nothing to do with that won me over. That's wonderful. Thanks for that, James. I'm wondering just a quick kind of technical question that comes in there. How do you how do you choose where to set the pass mark? Because if you set it too low, then you end up with more students passing than you have positions. So we do have more students passing than we have positions. We have so this year we had something like two thousand applicants. About nine hundred students passed the entrance exam. We interviewed seven hundred of those, and we'll give about five hundred offers for three hundred places. And the pass mark is set in our best judgment to be the lowest level at which you can cope with the education we're offering. So we teach very fast, we teach very hard, we make them do a lot of study, we pack as much learning as we possibly can into the week. You actually need to to really like academic education, be fairly good at it and have learned some stuff already in order for that to be a joyful and enriching experience. So, so, th- so that's 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 our baseline. Disadvantaged students who get over that baseline get offers, uh, and everyone else we order by score from highest scoring to lowest scoring, and the offers go to the highest scoring, and then the ones who've passed but haven't 
got on that highest scoring list go on a waiting list. And if we have spaces later in the year, then we offer to the waiting list. That's wonderful. And so obviously you don't have 500 disadvantaged people coming through and passing because then that's when you'd run into that challenge. Yeah. And if we did that, then they would be ordered by the, their score on the test and they'd be competing with each other, which is sort of fair enough. I know that it's a bit of a binary, which is a false binary, but yeah, it would be fair enough. But actually, no, we don't. Mm. The way things work, the way the world is, it's actually come out that pretty much 30 to 40 percent of our students are, are pupil premium. And, and I'd like to get over 40. I'd like it to be 40 to 50. That's that's one of my ambitions. Wonderful. And so you've just you've just mentioned there the kind of classifier for disadvantage, which is the pupil premium. For our international listeners, did you want to give us a very brief rundown of how someone qualifies as a pu- pu- pupil premium student? Uh- yeah, okay. So broadly speaking, and this is it's more complicated than this because it's a it's a government measure, but broadly speaking, if you have been on free school meals during your secondary school time at any point you're classed as pupil premium and to be on free school meals you need a family income of less than about 20,000 pounds and for your the international listeners in London that really doesn't go very far. Yeah. Great. That's really great to know. I'm curious because this is a really ambitious project and quite an innovative one as well. Kind of who whose brainchild was this school and how did it, how did it actually come to be? So I, I'm going to I'm going to tell you the story, which isn't quite true and isn't quite false either. So the Lord Harris is carpets millionaire, and he has had a long association with Westminster Abbey. And I like to imagine that in the drinks party after after one of their one of their do's, the Dean and Lord Harris are talking. And the Dean saying, Oh, I I I've got a school, you know. And Lord Harris says, Oh, schools are great. I've I've got lots of those. Uh, and the Dean says, Well, I mean I've 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 really got I've got I've really got two. And Lord Harris says, ah, oh, well, I, that is good having two. I, I've got 30. And the dean says, well, we, we, we should make a school together. Imagine that. It would be a brilliant school. And Lord Harris says, ah, oh, yes, excellent idea. We can make a really good school if we had one together. I'll get my people to call your people. And then the, the, the Harris Federation gets put in touch with Westminster School with this target of putting a school together. I think the, the, the truth is... Fairly close to that, probably without the stupid voices, because neither the Dean nor Lord Harris actually sounds like that. And the Dean went to see the opening of one of the other Harris schools, so Harris Academy Falconwood, and was quite taken by the competence of the Harris Federation, I think, and also their their passion for providing for the disadvantaged, um, which is finding education Providing education for the disadvantaged is something that was very close to the dean's heart. And so the Federation and Westminster School put their heads together and tried to work out what they could do. And Westminster School were very keen to do something. There's a lot of pressure on private schools to get engaged in wider education. But they also only wanted to do something they could do well, something where they could actually make a difference rather than it just being some virtue signalling. And... So they they very much felt there's no point in us running a 11 to 18 comprehensive because we just don't really know the 
we don't really know how to how to teach the the lower end because we're a selective school we don't really understand about providing for disadvantage because although we do have some students who are on full bursaries actually they are they're a tiny number and they're dealt with as individuals rather than being a big chunk of, of what we're doing and in the end they settled on a selective sick form and Westminster felt very very passionate that they could do uh, something interesting there and they could really support the curriculum and and make those things go on and the federation were thinking yeah we we know what we're doing here um we could do with some some help with making it shiny um getting that that really elite feel and we can provide all of the technical base we can provide a lot of the curriculum support and we really understand about disadvantage so so, so, so let's let's make this work. And then the third piece of the puzzle they needed, I think, was a principal who understood about coming from an ordinary background and, and going to top universities who understood about that transition and who was really interested and passionate in, in the whole learning thing. Learning's amazing, you see. Yeah, and for again, for international listeners, when you say sixth form, that's essentially the final two years before university. Yeah, so age 16 to 18 or 19. Great. Now, you talked about you talked about pressure in your in your previous answer and I imagine that for on on yourself there was a fair bit of pressure to really kind of create the culture, create the ethos. You kind of mentioned the idea of elite. Um you've also mentioned the idea of of things being scholarly and and really quite academic. And, and packing stuff in for students. And it seems like you, cho- you chose your weapon of choice in terms of trying to create that culture as being assemblies. Now, when I came across your book on Twitter, I, I was like, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't really thought about the role of assemblies in building the culture of a school. Would you like to tell us how you came to this conclusion that assemblies were going to be a really powerful lever for you to pull to build this culture that you were keen to? I think it was a fortuitous accident, really. I'd always quite liked giving assemblies. And at my previous school, I'd thought I I was the best. And I I said I I wasn't short of (laughs) Um, self-confidence. But they were bits and pieces. They sporadic. And uh, so I I would try and say something interesting and important to the students, but then that would evaporate. So it didn't really feel strategic. It felt like a good way to use those 15 minutes that are allocated for assembly anyway without really making a huge difference most of the time. But when we set up Harris Westminster, the Westminster school side were very clear that there would be whole school assemblies because that's something that they do. And I was fine with that. I was, yeah, good. I like assemblies. They're great. It's really nice. And a whole school assembly would be brilliant because all the schools I've taught in have only managed to get about one year group at a time. So having everyone there would be really good. And so we we set up this and i had to negotiate to get a space to do the assembly in and westminster abbey very kindly let us use st margaret's church which is a wonderful place it's it's a big church on parliament square and so we we trundled into our assembly and i gave my first assembly i don't actually remember i think i think the script is lost but i was i was doing an assembly in the way that i normally do an assembly and i'm 
I suspect it was interesting. I suspect it was idiosyncratic. I suspect it, it baffled a lot of people. This seems fairly normal. And then we had set up to have two assemblies a week. I would take one and my vice principal, Nick, would take the other. Uh, and he came to, to give his assembly. And his assembly was better than mine, which, which really piqued my ego. And he, he had come from Wellington School, which is big private school. And he had come from working with Anthony Seldon, who had been the head there. And I think that Anthony did amazing assemblies and really pushed them and made them part of what the school did. And so Nick came with the vision that, that assemblies are about communicating ethos that they're about shaping the school, that it's a really powerful way of communicating with staff and students. So it was Nick who came with, with these ideas, and I was just trying to, to keep up with how good he was. And then over time, we developed it together. We had these conversations I learned from him. I like to think he learned something from me, but I mean, maybe not. And we got to a place where the, the assemblies really were this this powerful thing for, for shaping ethos. And, and when I look back, even at those first few assemblies, some of which are in the book, they're definitely, that's what they're doing, even if that thought hadn't crystallised in my head. Wonderful. Well, I mean, in terms of the James-Nick competition, James, you wrote the book, so I think you've had the final word there, so congratulations. Excellent news. Excellent. <laughs> um, but I'm imagining this, at this point in the podcast, some listeners are, are there listening along and going, what on earth are they talking about? What are they, assemblies? Assemblies are boring. All the kids are, you know, playing on their, trying to play on their phones. Teachers or principals may be droning along around the, the last thing, you know, graffiti that was in the walls of the toilets or the swimming carnival that's coming up or something like that. So I thought something that would be really important within this podcast is to actually give listeners a taste of some or, or a full assembly that you delivered. Now, you know, even just reading the book myself, it was a bit of a strange book to read because it's like, you, how many are there, 30 or something? Yeah, 30. You're reading through 30 assemblies. Like, that sounds like one of the most boring things you could possibly do with your time. But, you know, I actually just totally binge read this book because it's just really entertaining and fun. And so, I would love to invite you today, James, to read one of your assemblies. And the one that, that my, probably my favorite assembly from the book was one that you delivered on 22nd of March 2017, entitled Three Stone Balances. So, if you'd, if you'd like to take up that offer, that would be great. And perhaps maybe also give us a little bit of context for, for why, for, you know, what was happening when, when you chose to write this assembly. So, uh, this, was, this was 2017 and we were, we were trying to, to build the community. We were trying to shape the students and, and try and think about the, the kind of place that we wanted to be. And it was towards the end of our second year groups, two years. So, it's towards the end of our third year together. And there are a couple of, of tendencies in the students which are still there, really. Um, so, some students just want to listen to what the teacher says and write that down. Some students think they know best uh, and don't listen to advice. And I wanted to try to, to nudge both of these groups of students along. So I wrote this assembly. Um, before this assembly, I sent everyone an email with a picture of two stones balanced on top of each other in front of, in front of the rolling sea breaking over them without very much explanation except to say that this was going to be relevant in today's assembly. And, and so I stood up at, uh, at the front of Westminster Abbey and I said this, 
A few years ago, I went on holiday to Lyme Regis, which I enjoyed for several reasons. I like holidays. I like Dorset because it balances my desire to head to the seaside against my reluctance to travel too far from my house. I like dinosaurs, and Lyme Regis is at the heart of the Jurassic Coast. I like tongue twisters, and she who sells seashells on the seashore was Mary Anning, a paleontologist from Lyme Regis. I like Jane Austen, and Lyme Regis is the setting of her finest novel. And I like breakfast, and in Lyme Regis there is a bakery where they have a fine morning repast. Particularly pertinent to today's assembly, however, is the fact that I like mad art. And Lyme Regis has an artist in residence who makes the town the kind of place where interesting and beautiful things are created. For example, there is a professional stone balancer in Lyme Regis who is encouraged by the artist in residence. He gets large stones and balances them on end on the seashore and then takes photographs of them, which he sells. We stopped to speak to him as he was creating his work on the promenade, and he explained that this trick is not getting stones to balance. Any stone will balance if you can find the sweet spot where the centre of mass is over the contact point with the ground. The trick is getting stones to balance in a way that it looks like they shouldn't be able to. The stone balancer came to mind when I was giving my lab lecture last week, and I was talking about the impossibility of a society being both equal and free. And it struck me that running a country must be quite like balancing a stone, finding the sweet spot between those two contradictory ideas. This morning, I would like to tell you about two other stone balancing acts, two other examples of cognitive dissonance, two examples of searching for the sweet spot between apparently contradictory ideas. The first comes from Westminster School. It's embedded in their ethos and runs deep in their DNA. And it's encapsulated in the phrase loyal dissent. Loyal dissent is the idea that one can question and challenge and still respect. That in fact, the greatest respect that can be shown to a scholar is to have her ideas, reasonings and axioms challenged and found sound. Loyal dissent is a stone balancing act because it is working for the team without being a yes man. It is being highly critical of sources and then spending time learning from the best scholars that have gone before. Loyal dissent is crucial to the peaceful communication that I spoke to you about last week. Communities become insular and intolerant if the choice is between loyalty or dissent. The only way the centre can hold is if there is a forum for respectful disagreement. I commend the practice of loyal dissent most strongly to you and urge you to have it in your mind, that stone balancing act. It is the centre of gravity held over the point of contact. Or are you going to tip over into unquestioning loyalty or possibly worse, into disloyal and destructive quarrelsomeness? I think loyal dissent is a useful form of cogn cognitive dissonance that will carry you far in life. But I want, inevitably, to rest for a little while and reflect on what it means for scholarship and our studies at Harris Westminster. I've often asked you to be more critical. And I've also often asked you to spend more time memorising the wisdom of others. And whilst you may have noticed the potential conflict or indeed paradox of these instructions, I've never before admitted the contradiction and attempted to resolve it. It is a balancing act. You should be critical. When you are presented with information, you should ask why and how do you know? And isn't that a simplification? But what you must not do 
is to allow this habit of critical scrutiny to become one of lazy rejection of authority. Please try to formulate arguments against orthodoxy. Please test every dogma against the white-hot intensity of your intellect. But when it passes the test, when your arguments come up short, as they will do more often than not, please accept the strength of what you have been taught and learn it. One of the reasons I urge you to be critical is so that you thoroughly understand what you are being taught. I suggest you ask hard questions, not because I think that what you're being taught is weak, but because I think it is strong and can take it, and that having argued against it, you'll be able to be more convincing when you reason in favour. Loyal dissent. Keep the dissonance in mind. The second dissonance follows on from last week from another Yeats poem. This one was written in 1919 in the aftermath of the First World War, and it strikes a different tone from the Lake Isle of Innisfree, and it seems particularly fresh and relevant in 2016-2017. It's called The Second Coming, and it goes like this. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast. Its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. There's a lot to love in that poem, but the words that haunt me are at the end of the first stanza. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Is it a statement of fact or a definition? Is it a withering criticism of our political leaders or a paean to the power of doubt? I don't know what Yeats thought, but I think that passionate intensity can be a good thing. I think that one of the dangers that politicians, especially centrist politicians, face is a tendency to boring pragmatism, to dispassionate realism, and that they therefore lose out to the loud voices of extremism when, in fact, making the world a better place is something that we can all be passionate about, even if we disagree on how it should be done. And there, maybe, is the danger that the worst in Yeats's poem fall into. Those full of passionate intensity have in many cases lost the ability to disagree, or at least to respect those with whom they disagree. They are so convinced of their own passions that they can't accept they might be wrong, so identified with their own viewpoint that any criticism is personal. I would like to suggest a stone balancing act, a cognitive dissonance. Can we be full of passionate doubt? Passionate doubt might sound like a contradiction. That, of course, is why it fits into today's assembly. How can you be passionate about something you doubt? Well, 
I think you can. And moreover, if we are to improve the world and maintain peace, then I think we must. We should stand up for our beliefs. We should express them passionately and enthusiastically. We should bang our fists on the table as we argue our point. And we should do those things not because we believe, but because we doubt. Not to browbeat our audience, but to provoke discussion, argument, dissent. The more passionate we are about something, the more we believe the truth of what we say, then the more we should welcome challenge and criticism. Because either we are right and our cause can take it, or we are wrong and really need to change our cause. I'm not sure passionate doubt links nicely into scholarship. Loyal dissent is a more useful idea day to day in the school. But as you look out into the wider world, as you think about what causes you will put time and energy into, as you consider what career paths are worthy of your talents, I urge you to develop passionate doubt. If we don't want things to fall apart, if we want to build a better society, then we need a centre that holds and we need to find a way for the best to be filled with passionate intensity without becoming the worst. I'm not saying it's easy. We watched the Lyme Regis stone balancer working for an hour, holding a single sea-worn rock on its end, gently shifting the centre of gravity until he felt it directly over the rock below and was able to remove his hand. In fact, whenever I have tried to replicate his work, I found that the point of balance is one I can only find with conscious readjustment. I can't remove my hand, but instead need to keep it there to give constant nudges. Stone balancing, like cognitive dissonance, loyal dissent and passionate doubt, is clearly something that takes practice. Thank you so much, James. It's so beautiful. I mean, as a podcast host, it's hard to know where to take things from here. But I guess that leads into another interesting question, which is, in your assemblies, what happens next? What happens next? Okay, so I tend to finish by saying thank you. And then they give me a round of applause, which is which is lovely. And that is, that's a cultural habit, cultural tradition that the students have generated. No one ever told them to. That's, uh, I think it's a natural response when someone says, thank you very much. Oh, yes. So, um, so that's so that's quite nice. That's how it's uh, that's how it ends. Um, when we're in the abbey, I then process out, led by the student president and the student vice presidents. And so uh, everyone stands up, and we process out to a piece of organ music, and then everyone's dismissed. When we're in St Margaret's Church, I stand at the front, and someone else dismisses the students from the back. We're we're a, a bit more casual when we're in St Margaret's Church than when we're in Westminster Abbey, but for very good reasons. Wonderful. Well, I mean, I I really liked that assembly because I thought it was a great representation of 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 the book and what you did more generally. You know, you started with a theme, the idea of balance. You 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 linked it to your own personal experience, your own interests. You know, I like dinosaurs. I like breakfast. Naming this place where you like to go on holiday. You know, there was the art in there, the the local artist balancing the rocks, and then you actually built on that theme to bring in some new ideas. These ideas of loyal dissent, dissent and passionate doubt that were relevant in the local context of the school. And that then led to kind of a call to action for the students, but not, not a direct call to action like, you know, <laughs> one of the ways you finish another of the assemblies, not a direct call to action like, so stop putting paper towels in the toilets, but it, <laughs> but it, which are obviously important at times uh, to make that call to action, but, it, but a more of a, 
a flexible call to action or an inspirational call to action, an intellectual call to action for them. So I just thought it was a really, really beautiful piece. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, one of the challenges from your previous school was that you would give assemblies, but because you kind of weren't in charge of the, the structure of the assemblies when they would fall and things like that, they were quite, the ideas were quite ephemeral and things kind of dropped, dropped off and there wasn't necessarily a level of continuity. So I wanted to ask in terms of this particular assembly, how did, were these words, these ideas, loyal descent and passionate doubt, were they kind of, did they come become part of the lexicon of the school? What happened, you know, following the raucous applause, of course, James, but what happened <laughs> um, down the track uh, from this assembly? So, so you're right, that, that, that continuity and that linking is something that has been really fun. And, and in that assembly, you heard me pre- refer to the previous assembly, um, which had been one on peace. I think it's also in the book, actually. And I, I read The Lake Isle of Innisfree and I talked about Switzerland and I was following on from, from that one. And so, so they, they exist in this sort of a wider curriculum, a super curriculum of the, of the school. Loyal Descent is something that belongs to Westminster School. Uh, I was, I was charmed by it. The, the headmaster of Westminster School had just published a book called Loyal Descent. And so, so that's what sparked that in my head. And I think it is really useful. We talk about it a bit, but we're, we're definitely borrowing someone else's clothes there. The Passionate Doubt is a new coining, I think. I think that's me. And it was me coming up with that idea and, and trying to encapsulate what I thought about some things. Uh, we'd just seen Trump elected, and that was the, the political context. I'd given a lab talk on how to vote, so there must have been an election coming up. And so I, I was trying to, to play with this idea, and, and I came up with this phrase that for a long time didn't really become part of the school lexicon but was in my head. It was something that, that I thought about quite a lot. So it was, it was something that worked for me. More recently, we have put it into the school lexicon. We've done some work as a staff on managing discussion, discourse, enabling students to talk about hard things and being a really good pastoral leader, not just in the individual, are you okay, do I need to do safeguarding kind of way, which is really important, but more in, I've got this group of of young people who are developing their thoughts about the world. I don't have a subject I'm trying to teach them, but I want to teach them to be to be these better adults that that have the desire to make the world better, not just for themselves, but for those they love, their their communities, those around them. And we've used passionate doubt there. So so we are beginning this year, sort of four years later after that assembly, to to take that idea and and push it out to students. That's great. I, I mean, I really love the idea because. When I read that phrase in that section, I thought, you know, that's really what I try to do with this podcast. I, you know, I, I'm incredibly passionate about education, but I think, you know, being a continual learner requires you to hold that passion in tension or in balance, as you put it, with this ability to doubt yourself and the conviction that you have in any particular instructional approach or anything like that. And that's why I love having people like yourself and others onto the podcast to challenge my own ideas. And so I can, you know, maintain that passion hopefully alongside this that doubt so thanks for coining the term and i'll i'll it's now become part of my lexicon as well 
James. Another thing that we saw in that assembly was a literary reference. You know, you read some of that Yeats poem, and which was a lovely poem, and inspired me to explore a bit more poetry myself, actually, which is, which is really great. But what I wanted to draw upon there is the, the idea that this, was, this assembly itself was actually one in which there were fewer literary or highbrow references than some of the others. Some of the other assemblies just included, you know, multitudes of references to things that I myself, as a mildly well-read person, had never heard of. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this is, this is great because it's, it's really aspirational for the students. But I was also thinking this could be very challenging and there's a da- I saw a danger of potentially alienating some students and making them think, you know, even a first or second assembly, you know, is this school really for me? Is this a bit much? You know, I don't come from a background where I know all these things. So that was a question that I had right throughout reading the book. And I was curious to inquire as to how you struck the balance or how you do strike the balance or whether you think that sometimes you don't strike the balance in terms of making those references. And, and tell me a little bit about your thinking in that vein. I think assemblies are for learning things. I think that any student, no matter what their interests and what their prior knowledge, who pays attention to an assembly should come out the far end having learned something new. And so if I don't teach them something during an assembly, I feel I've, I've let them down. So I, I do. I pack the things full of, of illusions. And, and you've picked up on the, the Yeats poem there. Yeah, I talked them through the Yeats poem, but I also told them which was the best Jane Austen novel. And it's a Jane Austen novel that they probably won't have read because it's Persuasion. And they'll have picked up uh, Pride and Prejudice or Emma. And so that that illusion there is is a sort of challenge to, to dangle out to them, to, for them to follow up later. Or not. I mean, some of them will have gone, oh, Jane Austen is fine. I'll let that one slide. And some of them will have heard the tongue twister um, before and be interested in, in Mary Anning. Some of them will be interested in dinosaurs and paleontology and, and be interested in Mary Anning. So there are, there are ideas for them to, to follow up there and, and challenges to them intellectually. And I don't think there's anything too highbrow for our students. I don't think there's anything too hard. I don't think there's anything that's beyond them. And I think that they have have a right to be exposed to all of these wonderful things and and if it's new to them then that's learning and and that's why we're in school right so uh, they're not they're not expected to know it all some things i will i will go through and i'll explain and, and some things i'll just dangle and, and reference and and let them come and ask questions if they want to how to how to make them interested i think that one of the things that comes up in a lot of assemblies and, and not that one, is that we use pop references as much as we use highbrow culture. And so you can't tell when I start quoting whether it's going to be Shakespeare or Taylor Swift. So I think that that, that keeps them interested. They're going, are these, these are interested word, interesting words. I, I don't know who's done them, but there's no reason for me to to think they're going to be beyond me because this could easily be a Backstreet Boys song that he's decided to, to quote today. Oh, so this was Yeats. Or I had never heard of Yeats, but now I have. So so I think I think that's how we keep them interested. I think that I I I think I adopt a deliberately conversational tone. So I like breakfast, I like mad art. This is not me as a stuffy scholar. This is this is me as as someone who's fairly ordinary with not saying, oh, this is great. And I really like the G 
Cheers, Skuro here. It's, it's me saying, I like stuff that's mad. And there's a guy balancing stones, right? That's that's mad. There you go. Something, something else that I found really interesting in reading your assemblies was the extent to which you kind of modelled this uncertainty and and the extent to which you were happy for or you appeared to be happy for some of the assemblies to be a little bit messy in terms of the narrative and and also the way that you explicitly talked about being uncertain sometimes you'd say things like you know um this thing happened recently there's many different takes on it you know today i'm not going to actually give you my view because i'm really not sure what my view is but what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about both sides and some interesting thoughts. And I thought that this was really powerful because it really models the way that well, one of my friends, Sarah McEwer, she talks about in learning the messy middle. And I think it's James Nottingham who talks about the learning pit. It's kind of this this space in the middle of the learning where you really don't know what's going on, but you kind of just have to be happy with stuff going everywhere as you find your way through. Is that kind of a conscious thing that you did within the assemblies or is it, or, or is it something else? I think the assembly you've picked up there on is the role of heroes, which is one of Nick's. And this is something that Nick was really great at. He was really great at being uncertain and going to somewhere and and shedding light on it without telling people what direction to travel. And it's something I've tried to learn from him. So I, I think I'm better than I was, but I'm always much more definite in the things that I think are, th- think are true. It's more my idiom. So it was, it was a nice contrast between us, but never been afraid of hard topics, never been afraid of, of saying what's right here isn't always clear. And so you need to think about these things, but I can't tell you what the answer is. I think the thing that I brought to this, this messy middle is a circumlocute Locutory? Circumlocutus. Yes, that's the one. That's that's my style. Uh, I'm normally quite good with words, but that one escaped me this morning. And synthetic. So I like to take a bunch of strands from different things. Uh, A mistake I've made in the past that makes me look a bit silly Mm. when I got stuff wrong. Uh, A a song lyric, a, a poem, something that some great politician has said, an event, a story, a person and weave from these diaphanous strands something stronger pull them pull them together so i think that i think that that is something that that i do bring to to the assembly style but that that real that real i don't know what the answer is here you need to work your way through it that's that's definitely a nick thing rather than a james thing okay yeah i thought it was i thought it was super powerful and something else that um struck me was the way in which you were really real with the students. So the, one of the particular assemblies that I particularly remember was kind of after an off, you just had an Ofsted inspection, your first one, and there was this build up and, and a, you know, some things had gone on in the school. You, you obviously needed to show that you were exhibiting British values and things like this. You knew that Ofsted would be looking at various things. And in the assembly that follows, you kind of essentially said, look, you know, we know you've had, you feel like we've been acting in this way recently. This is why, you know, here are the things that we were, here are the things that we were kind of up against. Here's how we tried to find a way through that. But kind of, you know, the leadership of a school being real with students in that way and not kind of like plastering over it and saying, oh, we've got this all under control, but really saying, you know, we're, this is actually a really tr- tricky time and we, we tried to find our way through as best we could. And these are the compromise that we made. I thought that was really wonderful and helped us. I imagine it would have helped the students to see you as real people dealing with real issues 
but also with their best interests at heart. Did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I think I think that is something that's definitely my style, and it's something that the students sometimes struggle to believe. So I don't really believe in in keeping secrets. When I was in Australia, one of the one of the things my wife and I did was we went to some evening classes in Australian sign language. So, uh, so, I, so I learned a little bit of Auslan. And the Auslan teacher decided to give us all sign names. So you don't have to spell out your name. And in order to do that, she has to think a little bit about you and, and, and find out a bit about you. And so she came to me and said, what do you like? And I said, well, I, I, li- I like to play cards. And she said, oh, right, okay. And so, so she, she held up her hand as if she was holding some, some cards. And, and, and she said, do you, do you hold your cards close to your chest? And my wife laughed and said, he really doesn't. And so, so my sign name is, is holding some cards, but spilling them forward so everyone can see them. <laughs> and this is, this is definitely the, the, the way that I try to lead. I, there are sometimes you can't tell everyone everything, but when, when you can, I like to be open. I like to say, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm going to try and do. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't work. Yeah, I got that one wrong. And I think it's good for students. I think it's good for students. We want to teach students to be leaders and students therefore need to see some of the leadership that's going on. These are the things that that the school leadership are, are thinking about. And they want to change things too and they want to, to shape the school and, and so it's important that they have some idea of the structures they're working within and, and the limitations that there are and, and the things that are hard in leadership and changing and, and organizations but I think that I think that sometimes they they think that this must all be an act and when they were lower down the school I guess 11 to 16 school the head isn't going to be quite so open with the 11 year olds I completely understand me and rightly and so they come to us and not only are we different to their previous experience but they are different they are older than they used to be this is a fairly normal process but one that surprises everyone all the time and so they sometimes some of them find it difficult to believe this is really what he's doing. They, they think it must be some kind of Machiavellian act. Well, it isn't really. This is, this is how it was. The ones, the ones that believe me do really well out of that. And the, the ones that, that don't kind of struggle. Mm. How do you plan one of these assemblies? Oh, gosh. I let ideas ruminate. So typically the idea for an assembly will come from the cultural reference. So it will come from a song or from a film, or or something like that. And the, the Stone Balancers Act came from the poem. And I, I, I said at the beginning of this that I, I memorise good poetry. And and that's something I do because, because I met Nick. Before we started this school, I was a poetic ignoramus. And Nick is English graduate who's very passionate about poetry. And I was there as his literary sidekick and saying, I'm just a mathematician, I don't know anything, but look, I'll, I'll try and learn some poetry, I'll try and impress you with how much I know. And so he would recommend poems to me and I would memorise them. And this is, this is one of the poems that he said, best poem ever. And so that, 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 that poem, and then it, was, then it came up on a website I was looking at and it said that it had been quoted more times in 
in 2016-17 than in the previous 100 years. And I thought, okay, there's something here and playing with that idea. And then I went to the book launch for the head of Westminster's Loyal Descent book. And I thought, okay, we're beginning to get something. What's going on here? I need a hook. What's my hook? And we've got the the, the big stone balancer picture in the living room. So um, there's my hook. There's how that's going to fit together. And then I sit down and I write it. And sometimes it's a little bit short and I need to throw an extra idea in there. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit long and I need to, to cut some of my ideas, cut some of my ideas back and, and make them illusions rather than explanations. Mm, it's quite involved. <laughs> That's... Yeah, yeah. But they're involved pieces, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's 1,500, 2,000 words of, of something that is full of diaphanous strands and, and somehow comes together to make a constructed whole. Yeah, I think I, making that's probably bound to be and, involved, and, isn't it? And um, you're doing one of these a week? Yeah. So in our first year, we had two a week. So I would do one and Nick would do one. In our second year, we moved to one a week. And so we'd take turns. And Paul and Claire would sometimes do some. Now we have well, things a bit different because of lockdown. So we've had to separate out and do them in bubbles. So we've got a year 12 bubble and a year 13 bubble. So we're actually back up to two assemblies a week, which I quite like. But without COVID, we do one a week and we take turns through senior teams. So I do about two a month. I do at the moment. Oh, okay. One a fortnight. Okay. I'm just, one, one of the things I often do when I when I think something is good is I try to deconstruct it. I try to work out, what's gone into it and if if i were to try to do something similar you know what pieces would i need to combine and put together to initially mimic but hopefully eventually kind of create something in the same vein kind of following that process here i i I kind of derived some sort of a structure for what the pattern i seem to see in in some of the assemblies i want to run that past you and see if see how wrong i am essentially (laughs) um so usually you start off with some sort of an allusion to the theme or something so it's like oh today i want to talk about balance or today i want to talk about ambition or something like that you'd usually and then you kind of generally wander off into some sort of narrative some sort of setting maybe a symbol or something like that that then led to some sort of tension or challenge or something along those lines often often you or or nick or i think claire was one of the other contributors those claire's claire's took a slightly different style to yours and nick's but you and Nick in particular, you then kind of model some openness, some openness to uncertainty, often like link it to some, something that's going on in the school, the school's values or, or, or an idea that you want to kind of promote and bring into the lexicon of the school. And then often there would be a resolution, but and particularly there would be a call to action for students. So that might be think about this, hold this thing in mind, don't put paper towels in the toilets, something like that. How does that sound? I think that's about right. The definite action ones are quite rare. Uh, normally, it's, it's a call to, to think and to, to, to ponder and to test an idea. Go, go away and think about this and see how it fits with, with the way you behave. I think that I think assemblies need, need not to be about me, but they need some of me in there. I think that it shouldn't be self-indulgent. This is this is all about how great James is. But the really good ones have something of me in there, me making myself a little bit vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that's that's something to to be balanced because you make yourself vulnerable you're open to being a bit hurt and I, I sort of think you have to as as a leader I sort of think that if you're giving an assembly and somebody rips it apart that should hurt and if, if it doesn't then you haven't put enough of yourself in there so not about me but it's got me in it I think they need something heavy, something weighty. It shouldn't just be trivia, but also they need something light. And occasionally we do assemblies that are really all quite heavy. An example from the book is the Charlie Hebdo one, which was just after the attack in Paris and and me trying to explain how we might make sense of that. That was that was all heavy, but but normally we have have something light, something silly, some kind of some kind of joke in there. The assembly you talked about about um, Ofsted, that was an assembly where the where the big content was on FGM. I think me saying that this is this is a real and important thing, and you shouldn't think we're just saying it because Ofsted are here. We're saying it because it's important. And I top and tailed that assembly with with a joke. So I, I asked the question at the beginning of the assembly and, and gave gave the answer at the end in the hope that, that, that they would pay attention. The small number of people who had held that first line of the assembly in their head all the way through waiting for the punchline gave gave a ripple of laughter whilst everyone else looked at them going, what are you? That's not what? So that's quite fun. I think that there needs to be something in the real world I think that we don't want to become too internally focused. I think that the students the students only have 22 months with us. That's that's something I, I emphasize a lot, that there's a very small amount of time and they need to do a huge amount of learning during that time. They need to go from being not much more than children to being ready to be adults. And part of that being ready to be adults is being ready to engage with a world where you're not protected by school. And so there needs to be something outside in in the assembly. But there also needs to be something here. It needs to be about the school ethos. It needs to be about how we engage with each other, how we engage with our learning what what we what are we trying to do? What what are you actually going to be doing over the next week? Slightly differently because of what I've talked to you about. And I think that the the really good ones communicate more than they say. There are illusions, there are threads to pick up on, there are things to talk about, things to think about, things to challenge, that it isn't it isn't black and white and step by step through to an answer. There is some some grey and some mystery and and hinting at something bigger, I think, is is what the best ones do. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with James stimulating and would like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search in the transcript for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast you're keen to listen to and listen back from that point. This month's summary for patrons will include the ideas of loyal dissent and passionate doubt, my deconstruction of James's framework for giving assemblies, James's description of what really makes an assembly effective, and some of the nuggets of wisdom still to come in the second half of this podcast. 
So if you'd like a memorable summary of this episode of Each of Podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, then simply go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the longer term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with James Hanscom. Mm. How did you develop this skill, James? Because, you know, there's, there's aspiring leaders out there listening to this podcast right now and they're thinking, oh, I want to give an, a, a great assembly like James can. And then they listen to all that you just mentioned goes into an assembly and they, oh, gee, well, that's a lot. Don't know if I can fit all that in. How did you kind of develop this skill? Is it something that kind of started in the classroom for you where you'd say a few words to students and build it up or have you been writing secret assemblies in since you were five years old and, you know, never letting them see the light of day? How, how did you kind of develop this skill? Like everything, it comes with practice. So my assemblies now are better and uh, more interesting and quicker than the assemblies I wrote in 2014. So, so, so keep trying. I am not very good at most creative things. So I say I'm learning to play the bass recorder. I, I'm learning to play the bass recorder badly. My musical ability is, is pretty low. My artistic ability is, is almost zero. So when I want to be creative, I'm creative with words. That's, that's my medium. And so, so that's always been something that, that I've tried to do. I think that, I think that words are powerful and, and I'm a mathematician, right? So, so I, I do numbers and, and doing sums is what I'm really good at. The, the words thing is, is a sideline, but I think that actually for communication, for leadership, for getting, getting people to do better, be better, do greater things, words are incredibly powerful and recognizing that and, and trying, practicing, doing the thing is what what i recommend i read a lot learning the poetry has actually been really useful because poets are fantastic at uh shaping words so not just having the idea but conveying it beautifully poets are great at and i steal great writers uh, sentences and phrases and and shapes of sentences a lot i think that i think that i started learning about assemblies as a form tutor and when I was NQT I was a pretty awful form tutor I think I didn't really understand that the whole relationships thing is not my strength I came into teaching really good at maths really full of self-confidence when it comes to maths some would say arrogance but not really great at any of the other stuff of teaching. I mean, why would you be if you've not done it before? It comes with practice. So I was pretty lousy for a while. And then when I was head of department, one of the form groups I got was a form group I really clicked with. They were a group that I, many of them I were in my maths class. And that uh, meant that I got to know them quite well. And so when we had extended form time, I was thinking, how do I make this meaningful? How do I, how do I get them to think about things that are, that are bigger than, than just the notices? How do I shape some engagement? And I remember one session, it was the beginning of a school year, and we had 
three days of form time or something. I, a leadership decision, I, I think, curious. But one of the things I decided to do was I played them the song Affirmation by Savage Garden. I believe I believe that beauty magazines promote low self-esteem is what is one of the lines. So it's a, it's a series of I believes. And this was in a, a Roman Catholic school. So I also then read them a creed. So I believe in in God the Father, and I I said okay. So so what what do you believe? Let's try and write our own I believe, and you you can go you can go Savage Garden, you can go Apostles Creed, you you can go where you want here, and this is this is really for you. I mean I'm interested, and if you'll let me, I'll I'll read them and engage with them. But I think it's important that we know what we believe, that we're ready to, to say, it. how can you stand up for something that you don't know what it is? And and you don't necessarily believe what someone else says. You don't have to believe what Savage Garden believes. Like, you, you're allowed to change, be different. And so we spent some time doing that. And that's obviously not an assembly, but it is. there are some of those ideas there of trying to engage with something bigger, taking, some, taking a couple of texts and, and weaving them together. One of them being pop culture and one of them being more profound, possibly. I don't know how you rate Savage Garden against the Apostles' Creed, but possibly claiming to greater profundity. So I think I think there's I think there's a lot. I think the the role of the form tutor is incredibly powerful and and probably a huge leadership role for a classroom teacher that I don't think gets enough training time. I don't think gets enough thought inevitably gets marginalized. But actually, this is where you're a leader. This is where you are shaping ethos. This is where you are are creating the kind of people that you want to be creating. It's in your classroom as a maths teacher, a little bit of that, but mostly it's teaching them to do long multiplication and construct triangles. Whereas as a form tutor, mostly it's teaching them to be better people. Mm, that's great. Just briefly for our international audience, what what does the form tutor mean in the UK? Uh, it covers a variety of sins. So it is a it's the bottom level of the pastoral system. So there will be a class group, probably thirty students that you meet probably every day for ten fifteen minutes. You'll take the morning register and possibly the afternoon register if you. Hold up, I lost you. I've lost you. Sorry, listeners, we just had a little break, so the interview will be a little bit disjointed, but I'll just pick up where James was left off before our little technical hiccup there. James, you gave a a good description of what a form tutor does. I'm wondering if at Harris Westminster, you kind of do anything to help help your form tutors develop these skills of, of leading the groups of young people in the way that you yourself did and the way in which you cut your teeth in this assemblies caper? I mean, probably not as much as we should. We've tried really hard over the last year to do more on this. So this is this is one of the areas that we are developing. We're still quite a young school, really. But this year we have run um, some quite good training, I think. We've we've done some training on passionate doubt. And we've also run a piece of a piece of training that I called Who is Mr. Hill? And the idea being that the most the most important thing you can do as a teacher, but particularly as a form tutor, is decide what the ethos for your classroom is 
And the first step of that is deciding on who who the the the, the teacher persona that you wish to portray is. What well, what is that person like? So Mr. Hill, Mr. Hanscom, whoever it is. And that's not the same as deciding who you are, because that's a really hard question. But deciding on who the person you want students to think you are is is more straightforward and, and definitely worth some time. And uh, that's not completely divorced from who you are. Uh, it's sort of a, a caricature of the better version of yourself. Yeah. And and so we've, we've done some training on, on that, thinking about how you engage with students as a human being. And the most important step to that being deciding which human being they're going to be engaging with. Wow. So did you run that or did some, some eponymous Mr. Hill run that? Uh, I ran that. Okay. Uh, the, the, the eponymous Mr. Hill is uh, a friend that um, I, I, I was talking to about it. And he, he said that he thought that 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 idea was an important one for being a form tutor. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. And I would steal that idea. I steal all my ideas. Very few of them are actually original. And I, I stole that idea and, and turned it into uh, some training that I ran for staff. Great. Now, speaking of stealing, that sounds like a really interesting training, James. Are you willing to share any of those resources or anything like that? Yes, I am. I can can let you have my resources, but the problem the problem is that my my resources are not terribly helpful without me there. Yeah. Um. So so my so 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 asking asking for my resources for that training is a bit like asking me for my notes for for this conversation. Got it. So I, I've got I've got a PowerPoint that I can definitely share that has some of the ideas, but my PowerPoints tend to be an image. In this case, I think it was Frodo Baggins. Uh, Mr. Underhill, you see, it's very clever. <laughs> and and then I talked around it. So, I, so I'm not entirely sure how much you'd get out of it, but I'm, I'm definitely happy to share what I've got. Great. I mean, that is, a, that is a thread that I would love to pull on more, but I'm just conscious of the time and there's some other things that, we, um, that I was keen to get on. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit more later. Maybe we can do a follow-up something or on something yeah. online for people saying, I think that could be really fun. Because I, I think that's a really, really important question. And one that I have not thought about that much and one that I have not heard other people talk about that much, you know, how do you want to present yourself to students? Um, How are you going to do that? And leading into what is the ethos that you're keen to build in your class? So, yeah. Well, well, perhaps you should interview Mr. Hill. He's he's called Mike Hill and he's on Twitter. I'll uh, I'll find a way to link you up. All right. That sounds great. Let's, Let's follow that up. Something else I wanted to talk about was this idea of disadvantage. Now, in, in the book, I mean, disadvantage is something that I've been exploring myself. You know, I spent the first five years of my career teaching at a very disadvantaged school. I'm still unpacking that, what that means and what that, you know, what was and meant for students and for teachers at the school as well. But in your book, you also addressed it and you talked about your process of coming to terms with what disadvantage meant for, for students in your school and, and different levels of disadvantage for different students in your school. Would you just tell us a little bit about what you've learned about what disadvantage means and what you've learned about supporting students who are quote unquote disadvantaged? Oh gosh, that's that's a long thing. So so I, I say in the book that my my conception before I started the school was that disadvantage was a a deficit of provision that 
the students didn't have access to to this really high powered curriculum. They didn't have access to the opportunities. They weren't able to wander around Parliament Square and, and walk past Big Ben in the morning. And, and so so that was their disadvantage. And I, th- I, th- I had thought that I would just put this these things on. I would, I would make a school and I would say, come to it and have all of the things. And then they would have all of the things. And for some of them, that was true. And it's sort of right, right? I mean, these, these are the big things that, that are missing from, from education. And if you give them to them and students take them, then, then that's a big step forward. But disadvantage is more than that. And some of it is practical. And dealing with that is, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to do, but it's sort of easy to plan. So some of them don't have proper meals. So you give them free school meals, you give them lunches, but we also give some of them breakfast. Some of them don't have space to work at home. So you make the school library open for a long period of time. Some of them struggle with the, the cost of, of travel or, or buying clothes. And, and so you have bursaries and engaging with these and doing it sensitively and, and making sure you're making the right provision and finding the money for it. They, these are all really hard and really messy and difficult things to do. But sort of the, the, the book answer is, is straightforward. What is, I think, more interesting and, and more surprising is a couple of other deficits. And and one of them, I quite like this phrase, I think it's me, the, the confidence of the back pocket. If you if you have a £20 note, you can put the £20 note in your back pocket. For for international listeners, this is a unit of currency. And uh, you get, you're, getting, you're catching on, James, you're catching on. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I know how this works. And then you can go to, go to London and you can go to the National Gallery. That doesn't cost anything. You can go for a walk in the parks. That doesn't cost anything. You can see the statues. It doesn't cost anything. And you know that if things get bad, uh, if, it, if it rains, throws it down, you can go into a coffee shop and buy a coffee and wait for the rain to pass or dry off or whatever it is. If you find it's, it's late and you get scared, you can get a cab and, and you can get yourself home because you've got your £20 in the back pocket. And you probably won't use that £20. It will probably be fine. So your £20 will then take you on another adventure the next day or the next week. And you can keep having the same, you keep having different adventures on the same £20. But if you don't have the £20 in your back pocket, then every adventure is a big risk. And even though the adventures might be free, you're taking a risk that if it goes wrong, you won't be able to get yourself out of it. And so you don't take as many risks. You don't go on as many adventures because you don't have that £20. And that's something that I hadn't thought about and something that is really difficult to overcome. How do you fix that? How do you how do you make adventures safe for students that that can't afford £20 that will get you out of the problem? And the other the other deficit that I talked about, and I, I did a training session for the, the governors of the Harris Federation on this, is is a beauty deficit. And beauty is is a luxury. And I I illustrated this with with leisure, which is a poem if we have not time to stop and stare. And if you're very focused on making sure that you have the basics making if you're if you're not sure you'll have dinner tonight if you're not 
if you don't know where you're going to stay tonight because you've been evicted from your home and and your parents are working with emergency housing during the day then then if this is this is the framework of your life then school is about getting the qualifications that will get you a job that will pay rent that will enable you not to be in this situation when you're grown up or or will enable you to support your family to to provide some income for your family so that they're not in in that situation in the fairly in the more immediate term and the idea of of learning things that aren't directly related to qualifications the idea of of having a bigger picture of of the world is is quite an alien one. It's not something that you get used to. The idea of spending an hour going to the National Gallery is, why would I do that? How is that going to help me be a doctor? Well, it isn't, but maybe thinking about these things will make you a happier doctor or, or engaging with the truths of humanity will make you a better doctor. Or help you realise you don't want to be a doctor. You realise you don't want to. Be, that would be even better, wouldn't it? Or, or a better, better father or husband. I mean, all of these things are really important, and and they just get squeezed out by disadvantage. And so that's something where, I mean, I we say learning is amazing a lot, and this isn't this isn't just a catchphrase. It is it's the truth that drives the school. That, that learning isn't transactional, that we're not in education uh, in order to buy qualifications so that we can get a job. I mean, that, 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 that's part of it, but it's the most boring part of school, that actually we're, we're at school to be better people, to, 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 to get more power and learn to use that power more wisely. And, and so, so we push all of these ideas and I, I throw these high culture things out in assembly and we have cultural perspectives, which are lessons that the students take and they, they choose from this huge menu of things that the staff are interested in and want to teach. It's, it's one of the great things of being a teacher at Harris Westminster is that you get to teach whatever it is you're interested in. And and they don't have, there are no qualifications attached to that. And students are, are quite explicitly in the curriculum going to lessons that are compulsory. You have to do some of these things, but you get to choose which ones that are not going to give you qualifications. You're learning this because learning is amazing rather than because it will help you be a doctor or lawyer or whatever it is. So lots of things to engage with lots of challenges being disadvantaged is a real disadvantage it is it isn't just being a bit poor it is a real problem it makes life much harder and we as a society we as a school with me as an individual something that that we want to to ameliorate we want to find a way for students to have to have more choices than they would otherwise yeah it's a really interesting powerful tricky idea this one of it's kind of like if if students come with all with many many gaps in their knowledge in their education because of their upbringing the the kind of the natural reaction is to say all right well let's cut out all the extra stuff that's kind of extra not examinable and let's just really focus on you know quote unquote the basics and you know i've i've done this myself a lot i would say um in that in the previous context that I was in. But as you say, what that actually does is it robs students of so many opportunities that really would enrich their lives. And it, and it reinforces this narrative of education as like purely functional. It's all about 
you know, getting the grades and getting the getting the results and getting into uni and getting the job and getting the wage and then, you know, help your kids do it as well. And I get that that was one of the things that really struck me about your book and your assemblies in a way. You kind of and it's kind of in contrast to this thing I've spent a lot of time thinking about, which is cognitive load theory, which is like, you know, decide really what the message is and deliver it in the most effective way. Your, your assemblies and your way of being and your school, from what, I, from what I've picked up for our discussion today, it's really about just saying, here's, here's the world. We're just going to throw it at you. you. You'll pick up some bits along the way. You'll drop a lot of them. But, you know, as it flies past you, you'll go, oh, there's some other things I might want to, you know, chase up down the road a little later on or something like that. It's, I don't know, it's a, it's a way of thinking about disadvantaged, kind of like this hinter, this missed hinterland is another way of putting it, that I'm only starting to see now, uh, but that I think is so important. So, I just want to thank you for kind of, you know, mentioning it in, in the book, but also mentioning it today. I mean, I think that, I mean, in a way, I'm doing the same thing, right? The, the key message is that learning's amazing, and I try to communicate that in every way possible. So... So when so when that's your key message, it's different from when your key message is, if you know, the three sides of a triangle, then you've got a co- triangle that's fixed up the congruence. And the reason why I think learning is amazing should be the, the, the key message. I mean, apart from the fact that it's obviously true, if you, if you want to look at that transactionally, then you just have to do a little bit of maths, which is everyone's favorite pastime. So if you if you have a look at how many hours students are going to spend in lessons and i think that that one of the great things we do as a school is we make that a lot we make that a big number and so the students are in lessons for about 22 hours a week and and typically well the government the government funds for 15 so this this is one of the things i get very very angry about I do not think that 15 hours a week is a full-time education, Mr. Government. So, 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 we, so we make it 22, which is, which is pushing the envelope quite a long way beyond 15. And there are about 40 weeks a year and students are with us for, for two years, uh, actually a bit less than that, 22 months. So with the best will in the world, the students are in lessons for about 1,700 hours. That's, that, that's how long you've got them for in front of you. However, if we do another calculation, because calculations are uh, fun and amazing, the number of hours from the 1st of September, year 12, to the 31st of August, year 13, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, two years, that's about 17,000 hours. So there are 15,000 hours where students are not in lessons, but they are enrolled at the school. And I mean, some of those they're going to be asleep for, right? I mean, you can't you can't have them learning the whole time. It's it's just not fair. But the more of those fifteen thousand hours you can get them to spend learning, the more they will have learned. That, that those fifteen thousand hours are way bigger a resource than the two thousand they're in lessons for. And if you can convince them that learning is amazing, if you can convince them that there are things they really want to learn, there are things that 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 they really should learn. There are books they should read and enjoy. That this is a great thing. That this is their job. This is what they have to do. This is what they ought to do because. A, a, a truism of education is that most children want to please most adults most of the time. They want to be good. They want to do the right things. Just nobody ever tells them what the right thing is to do. So I, I do tell them. I, I say you should you should learn some stuff. And so they go away and they they learn some stuff and and enabling and acting getting hold of those fifteen thousand hours 
is a huge difference maker. That's not a good word, but you know what I mean. Mm. I mean, that leads really well into the next thing I was curious to ask you about. And this is kind of the last, the last probably big question for the podcast before we move into some closing ones, James. In one of your assemblies, but it was a theme throughout the book, you talked about the importance of becoming a good learner, kind of learning how to learn. And that's, you know, you talked about how it's the thing that sets really employable people apart from not so employable people. Uh, but you, you also, you know, emphasize the value of it just being a student more generally and a person kind of learning for life. I'm wondering what you do at Harris Westminster to help students to become independent learners. And, and, and are you feeling, do you feel like it's kind of like it's working for you or is it an area still where you'd love students to be taking even more ownership of their learning? I, I would always love students to be better at all of the things that we teach them. But I think that we, I think we basically nailed this one. This is one of, one of the really exciting things. We call it response and it's part of our uh, assessment policy. Um, and our assessment policy is a work of towering genius. I wrote it. And response is the idea that you get assessed, you take a test of some sort, you get a mark, and then you do something about it. How do, how do you respond to that feedback? And this is, this is a way of life. This is a way to be, a way to engage with, with the universe. But there's a picture for it. So it's something that is, is bigger than this, but the in-school picture is that you, at the end of every half term, they take a test in every subject and they get a mark on two aspects, mechanics and purpose. Mechanics are the bits and pieces, the detail, the facts, and the purpose is the wider the understanding, the synthesis, the application. So they, so they get good feedback there, two-dimensional feedback. And then what are they going to do about it? And they have a week's homework, so four hours in each subject, to write a plan, to write a reflection, to say, these are the things I got right. These are the places I got wrong. This is why I got it wrong. This is These are the ways in which my learning has not been perfect so far. And this is what I'm going to do to be better. So I've got some corrections to write. I mean, that's boring, right? But then there are some things I didn't understand. So I'm going to do some more questions on those. I'm going to read some notes. I'm going to write some notes. I'm going to do something that clarifies this idea for me. I made too many silly mistakes. So how do I eliminate silly mistakes? Well, one of them is is actually memorizing stuff and knowing it properly rather than being in a position where you can make a mistake. One of them is is checking. So do I go back and check? No, I don't, because I don't know what checking is. So how can I do a 20-second check on these answers that have taken me five minutes to get? That's obviously a good idea. I'll, I'll learn some of that. I ran out of time. I didn't. So I need to do things quicker. So how am I going to do that? I'm going to practice some things under time conditions. I'm going to store some things in long-term memory rather than working them out on the fly, because that makes it quicker. So each of them will have a different response. Each of them will be doing something different on the basis of possibly the same mark in the test because they got different things wrong. And so they, they write this plan, they do this reflection, and then they start on their four hours, their, their four hours starts some of that work. It won't complete at all. Our testing period is just before a vacation. And we say that the vacations are for reading, resting and reviewing in equal measure. And that review third of your, of your vacation is to do all of the work that you planned in your responses. So, so that's, that's, that's our model. And it's something students need to be taught. They don't come to us with this skill. They don't come to this, to us having a clue what we mean by response. So we have to teach it. And it's not something that's trivial to teach. And so some students learn it better than others. But the students that learn it well, the students that really buy into this idea, make incredible progress. This is, this is an incredibly effective 
way to be. And and the fact that we collect those responses in and we mark them, we give them feedback on their response so they can then respond to that feedback as well, right? So you've got a, a whole meta response going on. But we also report those grades to parents on the same basis as the mechanics and purpose. So students get three grades for each subject every half term. And one of those three grades of equal weight with the other two graded in the same way is a response grade. Yeah, that's awesome. Because so often, I mean, that that is the heart of learning, right? It's saying, you know, what did I get? What do I need to do to get better at it? And, you know, there might be a pre-filled answer in terms of what you need to do there. But often it's about, you know, personally working out what exactly it is for you. If you can train students to do that, that's so powerful. And so often it's kind of like 10 minutes in the lesson after the test is given back, right? And that, and the students kind of come to know that there's no follow-up or anything. And so they don't really put any time into it. So to give it equal weight and to really make that their holiday homework and rest, reading and review in equal measure as well, part of that balance, I think is super powerful. Uh, a work of towering genius, I believe you called it. Yeah, so uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I call it. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, this, I mean, there's so much more that it, from the book, James, that I you know, wanted, to, wanted to talk about today. I'm always too ambitious in these interviews. There's the idea of kind of maintaining culture as a school grows and things like that. The clubs and societies were an awesome part of, obviously, of your school and that were mentioned in the book that I loved. You know, the basis on which you hire people and what happens in student interviews. There's just so much to talk about, but we have been talking for two hours and I know your, your wife's fighting you for the, uh, for, for the study. So we better, we, better, we better wrap it up. But in terms of a few closing questions, the first one I'd like to ask is, what advice would you give to your first year? And I'm going to go school leader here. What advice would you give to your first year school leader self? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm going I'm I'm to cheat, I think, because I think that teachers are all leaders. I mean, I've said that I think that the, the form tutor is 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 a leadership role. And I, I'm not. I I mean, one year into teaching, I was second in department, so I'm I'm not sure there's a there's a big distinction there in, in my experience. So I think I think I would say keep true to yourself. I'd say keep challenging, keep experimenting. Don't don't just believe what you're told. Give stuff a whirl. A lot of it won't work, but some of it will. Keep thinking hard. Even the stuff you get wrong makes you stronger, makes you know more. Uh, but but don't bother trying to teach group theory to year eights. That's just a terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> Good advice. Do you spend much time on Twitter? And if so, um, any favorite tweeters that we should be checking out? I spend too long on Twitter. So there's a, there's a Wendy Cope poem, and it's called Favourite. And it's it goes, when they ask me, who's your favourite poet? I'd better not mention you, though you are certainly my favourite poet, and I quite like your poetry too. So uh, the, the, my favourite, my favourite tweeters are, are not the people that I'm going to going to be telling you about. So I think that for education, Laura McInerney and Sam Friedman are very good. I think they are very clever and experienced, and think hard and say sensible things. Uh, so uh, I learn a lot from them. I like Nate Silver and the 538 stuff. And basically, they tweet links to their website, in fact. But I find that incredibly useful and, and a way of using numbers to think about politics, which is attractive to a mathematician. And finally, Zach Wiener-Smith is a, a webcomic that I follow. Um, he is absolutely fascinating. And the thing that the thing that I love most about Zach is is his embracing of the idea that learning is amazing, 
that he wants to know more about everything. He's written an abridged version of Beowulf. He's written uh, books about science. He he asks crazy ideas uh, uh, on Twitter and says, I don't know anything about how you'd set up atmosphere scrubbing on Mars. Could you use giraffes in that? And then get some weird answers. And he's, he's asking weird questions, getting weird answers and trying to put it together to, to understand the world better. So he's, he's a strong recommendation. Love it. Favourite education book? So I really like How to Explain Almost Anything to Almost Anyone by Andy Tharby. I think that's a, that's a really brilliant book that I've read recently. I love The Learning Game by Jonathan Smith. That is a story of what it's like to be a classroom teacher and, and what that really means. And that's great. And a book I read when I was beginning my senior leadership career, I haven't gone back to it, so I'm not sure how well it holds up 15 years on. It's called Seven Kings, and it's looking at uh, Seven Kings School, which is in a tough part of East London, and following seven students who are there. So it's it's a nice play on words, which I, which I very much enjoy. But thinking about disadvantage and thinking about a student's experience of a really good and interesting school. And I found that very formative when I was starting my leadership. So I think I recommend that, but it might be dated. Yeah, wonderful. Um, now, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, this question, but I realised I must throughout our interview today. Three favourite poems. Three favourite poems. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So definitely Church Going by Philip Larkin. And that's that's a beautiful musing on on the meaning of churches by uh, someone who is famously an atheist. So that starts once I'm sure there is nothing going on. I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting seats and stones and little books, sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence brewed God knows how long, hatless. I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. And it goes on, there are six verses. I can't spend the whole time reading the whole thing for you. But th- th- that is, that's just clever and beautiful. And, and if, you want a, if you want a tiny picture of what's clever in there, the tense, musty, unignorable silence brewed God knows how long. He's in a church. I mean, God exactly knows yeah. how. So, so that's good. Um, I, what do I like? I really like The Second Coming, which I've already read to you. So let's, so let's have that one in there and then I don't need to, need to recite that one for you. And, and finally, a, a masterpiece in miniature. And I'm going I'm to see if I can do this whole one for you. It's a poem called Snow by Louis McNeese. The room was suddenly rich. The great bay window was spawning snow and pink roses against it. Soundlessly collateral and incompatible. World is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural. I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. And the fire flames with bubbling sound. For world is more spiteful and gay than one supposes. On the tongue, on the eyes, in the ears, in the palms of one's hands, there is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. And that's 
my third one. I think that's. I think this is what I'm meant to do. Is that what you told me earlier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and then the organ starts. What are you excited about at the moment, James? Uh, I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, the Women's Six Nations is is going on at the moment, and I've got the prospect of supporting a winning team for a change. My daughter's 18th birthday is coming up. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be nice to get back to teaching without masks, if ever we're allowed to remove those. I mean, I, I guess one of the things that I'm really excited about is my next cultural perspectives class. And uh, next term, I'm running cultural perspectives on the history of people with learning disabilities. And this is this is a course where uh, Ben Newmark has actually done all the, the hard work. I'm, I'm stealing his work, but I'm really looking forward to to exploring exploring that with students who whose life might not include somebody with learning disability right where we're an academically selective school all of us in our community are very clever and, and learn very easily at least compared with with norms and so so thinking about these people and and what happened to people with down syndrome during the stone age well i don't really know i'm going to find out and then then teach the students something so i'm really looking forward to that yeah right and any last calls to action or think, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Oh, Polonius was an old windbag, wasn't he? So, uh, so I won't say to your own self be true. But and, and that's not really what building your life on ethos is, because it's not being true to your own self. It's is thinking about what better self you want to be, what 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 better world you want, and, and being true to that, being true to your ambition and to to your dreams. So I guess I would say recognize the power that you have recognize the choices that you have to shape the world and uh, decide to be better decide to to make the world better for for you for those you love for for those around you for the whole community that's a that's a very headmasterly kind of thing to say isn't it and i think i think control your vulnerability i think that you talked about the messy middle and we we've talked about stone balancing um i think that it's easy to swing to one of two extremes and, and one being not to share anything. I, I will not let you pass my armour and the other to to share so much that you're incredibly vulnerable, that, that every wind cuts cuts you to the core. And I think that, that we have to, as leaders, as teachers, decide strategically how much we want to share. Who is Mr. Hill? Who Who is this person that the students are going to meet and engage with? And that will have some of you in it and that will make you a little bit vulnerable, but it shouldn't have so much that their words wreck you. So there you go. James Henscombe, thank you so much for your time today. I really feel like this has been quite a, a beautiful podcast. And I, 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 I've never said that of one of the podcasts before, but you know, starting off with you sharing that assembly that I really enjoyed reading, but even even more so enjoyed enjoyed you 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 reading out yourself. So much poetry, it's great. You know, I'd be surprised if anyone left this podcast without a a richer you know a richer and fuller interest in poetry and you know a, a sense that they want to explore it more. And I guess more than anything, that really captures what you've done at your school and what you've done through your assemblies. You know, I'm 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 really excited by the fact that today's podcast you know, hopefully encapsulates a bit of the essence of what your assemblies do. And that's really the way that I wanted to convey to listeners what your assemblies do and what your book has done. Um, so if they are leaving, you know, with a sense of beauty, if they are leaving with the idea that they want to explore things further, 
then I think that we've we've really achieved our goal. Um, you know, there's there's many other things. You know, there's these ideas like loyal descent, passionate doubt. I thought your idea of the confidence in the back pocket and the beauty deficit are all really, really powerful ideas that I'll take with m- myself, and I'm sure listeners will will take away and will become part of the lexicon of the E Triple R podcast and and of the community more broadly. So thanks for your time today, James. Thanks for all you do, and good luck teaching that exciting class next term. I hope it's I hope it's a real joy for you, and I'm sure it will be for your students. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EWR podcast with James Hanscom. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off or any book from John Cat. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the EWR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflection on this episode or any other EWR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.